folks, and a very warm welcome to another episode of This Is Hate CD. My name is Jerry Scullion, and I'm a service designer, design coach, and trainer working internationally with change makers from all over the world. Now, did you know we have a private change making community as part of our ecosystem on This Is Hate CD? We have a tight community of around 20 change makers who connect monthly and support each other, learning from each other all with a focus on improving society through design. Interested in learning more? Well, the link is in the show notes. Now, in this episode, I speak with a remarkable designer that I met when I did a recent keynote at UX Scotland. He too was a keynote the day before I spoke, and he was simply awesome. He was genuine, sincere, transparent, honest, knowledgeable, and he was filled with a sense of purpose when he spoke. His name is Heldon A. Pereira and he's based in London and is a director of St. Martin's and he's also a designer at Monzo. As a trigger warning, we do speak about mental health issues in this podcast. But before we jump in, though, I want to give a huge shout out to today's sponsor on the podcast, Miro. Now, Miro approached me earlier this year to collaborate and it was a great fit as I use the tool all the time. And I've been using Miro pretty much since it launched and at that time I used it primarily as a repository tool in government where I was unable to access tools to help Sense make my data. It allowed me to share my research data to stakeholders all over the world at that time and this was way back in 2015. So since then it became part of my staple suite of tools that I use and access daily. At its core, I see it as a great tool to enable greater sense of alignment within projects, which, as design starts to get included more in complex problems, it becomes more and more important. Alignment is part of any movement, and we want to move from chaos to clarity, and this tool helps me and my clients enormously. Show some love by visiting the link in the show notes or by visiting www.miro.com forward slash podcast. Now, let's jump into this episode with Heldon A. I saw you uh, speak in UX Scotland, was it two months ago? Probably is two months ago. <laughs> and absolutely loved your talk, okay? And I loved you as well, truthfully. Like, it's, I was more gutted when your talk was over that you weren't going to be able to hang around and chat and, you know, connect a little bit more. But we're hoping to do a little bit more of that in this podcast. Before our guests, or for our listeners, should I say, maybe start off, tell people a little bit about where you're from and what you do. Yeah, I was, I mean, I'm not sure how far back I'm going, but I think it is relevant. But I was born in a very small island in Africa called oh. Santa Mae and Principe. Cool. It's a former uh, Portuguese colony, so it's off the west coast of Africa. It's an island with a very small population of roughly 200,000 people. I was born there, lived there until I was five, moved to Lisbon, and then uh, left Lisbon at 11, and have been in London since, basically. Wow. Um, so there are a few different countries in yeah, my yeah. history. I, I love when uh, I have people on the show who've lived in several different places, but it's really interesting that you've lived in different places before the ages of 11. What do you think that perspective has given you as your as your life has evolved? You know, living in three different places, especially two different places before you were eleven, is quite interesting. What does that give you as a change maker? That's a excellent question. I I think without it took me a while to fully realize that my brain was shaped in this way. I definitely think it became very easy to see similarities different versions of very similar things in the different countries that I lived in. Hmm. 
Hmm. And I think one of the side effects of that is generally finding myself very difficult to be, say, patriotic. I struggle to firmly believe in the views of any one country because I've seen variations of culture, variations of beliefs and um, ways of perceiving life and Mm. what's polite, what's impolite that allow me to step outside a little bit and to look at it from a more human perspective and understand that we have like different ways to try and achieve similar things. So in some ways you're able to cherry pick um, parts of the cultures and parts of the belief systems that align to you as a soul or as a person, like, you know, is what I'm hearing. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I I feel more like uh, a citizen of Earth than anything else. And I heard that come through in your talk as well. You know, it was very much uh, a kind of, you've been on a journey and it makes sense now. I didn't realize about the journey you had from a child to Lisbon and then to London. But maybe tell us a little bit more around the roles, because you've got two incredible roles at the moment. Tell us. I certainly find them incredibly nourishing. I am a director of a branch of roughly 100 volunteers of a charity called Samaritans, mm-hmm. which is a mental health charity. Yeah, It started as a suicide helpline with a mission to help decrease the number of people who, who die by suicide. It's now broadened its reach to support anyone who is struggling with mental health. And it could be you've had a really bad day at work. It could be you're going through a depressive episode. Or it could be that you're feeling suicidal and you want to speak to someone. Mm. I became a volunteer after having received support from them when I myself was questioning the value of my own life. Mm. I didn't necessarily feel compelled to want to take my life, but I was questioning what the purpose of it is. Mm. So when I made the call, I was blown away by the empathy that was shown to me by a complete stranger on the phone, how anonymous the service remained. I never had to disclose anything about myself, and I was still shown a level of kindness that helped me heal and helped me see the world in a new light. I wanted to learn to do whatever that volunteer did Mm. with me. So I became a volunteer roughly five to six years ago now, and Throughout that journey, at some point, the branch that I joined chose for me to be the next director. And that was about 10 months ago now. And every director of a Samaritan's branch has a tenure of roughly three years. So I'm roughly a year into a three-year tenure of leading the branch. It's basically a a CEO role for a nonprofit. Uh, And in addition to that role, uh, I'm a, a lead product designer for Monzo a digital bank with no brick-and-mortar branches whose mission is to make money work for everyone. In in many ways, uh, you probably recollect from my talk, I, I think of them as being very related. Yeah. Uh, I think they are ultimately about shaping a better version of, of life, uh, day-to-day life for, for all of us mm. in the UK. So what do you see the correlation between money and new banks uh, how do they connect with the Samaritans' work? I want to see your and hear your perspective on that. I'd love to hear it. I think this is also highly relevant to what I experienced in my childhood. And what I experienced was a... So I was raised by a single mother and in a household where financial literacy wasn't the highest. And my mom and my auntie and my grandma, who I grew up with, all had to figure out a lot of things on their own. Sure. Um, And in that space, you end up taking a lot of guesses and you end up 
having to learn a lot of things firsthand, like how do you properly use a credit card? And there were moments where my in my household, we would struggle financially and my mom and others would find alternative ways to get money. And one of them was a credit card. And I remember how quickly it got out of hand and the emotional strain that placed in my mom to, to use right. a credit card and to feel like it got out of hand and to find herself having to repay copious amounts of uh, interest on top of the amount that she yeah. used on her credit card. And the mental health impact that had on her immediately started to affect all of us in the house. It affected me, it affected her relationship with her, her sister, with her mother. And that is just one example of how I think our relationship with our money directly influences everything in our lives, our well-being yeah. and the well-being of those around us. Yeah. So what do you say to people like the cynical people out there who might question, you know, working for a bank and, you know, what value you can bring to even a new bank, you know, who are trying to disrupt the market, I guess, you know, what impact can you actually have within an organization like that? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. There are certainly systems at play in a broader banking system that mm. are harder to shift yeah. than than others. And being a, a challenger bank, being a digital bank, doesn't necessarily make it any easier to shift any of these really well-entrenched systems. In some ways, you could argue it maybe makes it a bit harder, actually, because you're the new player. But I think all great things in history take a good deal of time to, to come to fruition and patience and commitment. I think one way or another, we have to evolve our financial system to better serve the people that are part of it and sure. to be more equitable and to better favor good outcomes for everyone. The FCA recently updated its expectations of organizations to, to lead to good customer outcomes. And yeah. this is the kind of training that everyone that works for a bank has to go through and be aware of. So the work that we all do as employees of a, of a bank has to really evidently show that we're trying to lead to good outcomes for the people that choose to bank yeah. with us. And principles like that are just one of the ways in which uh, contributing to, to this system and helping towards that change that happens over time, slowly but surely, I think, will lead to a better version of reality for yeah, us all. Absolutely. And I, I wasn't trying to be patronizing when I asked that question or, or anything other. Like, I believe in what, what you're trying to do and your, your keynote at UX Scotland was very much in line with what I was speaking about as well. But one of the things that did strike me at the, the keynote, and I remember having it, I didn't take too much notes at Scotland, but I took a few bits and pieces of your talk, was resilience seems to be a big thing in your toolkit, your personal mm. toolkit. And I'm hearing it there as well, like the, the long game, you know, improving the situations. Um, it's not going to happen overnight. These phrases that I heard you utter when you were on the stage. Where does that come from and how do you nurture it? Yeah, I think for me personally, resilience is strongly tied to purpose. And I think you can't, for me alone, I, I don't think I can have one without the other. Mm. Moments where I feel disconnected from my purpose, I, I feel a lot less resilient. When I experienced what I experienced when I decided to call Samaritans, in that space, I was feeling disconnected from my purpose. And in feeling disconnected from my purpose, my my resilience was impacted. Yeah. And 
I had to find a way to reconnect with my purpose, to reprioritize, to refocus and feel like I am on a path that whenever I look back on my life, I will feel proud of the choices I made and I'll feel fulfilled that I, I was able to achieve whatever it is that mm. um, I, I achieved. And I think to to find yourself in a place in your life where you're able to be the most resilient version of yourself, I think you need to understand what is the thing that makes you tick most, what makes mm. you feel uh, most motivated to get up in the morning. And when you're able to zoom out and look in the long term and think about what are the outcomes of the things that I'm working on right now, and are those things worth sticking around for and working as hard as I can or as smart as I can because rest is also really important and it's important to pace yourself. Mm. Often it's a marathon, not a sprint, and trying to sprint um, can burn you out very quickly. I think resilience to me is a direct uh, side effect of having a strong relationship with your purpose. Are you okay to talk about the journey towards your purpose? Yeah, absolutely. When you were younger, when you were, um, you, you left Lisbon at 11, I think you said, was it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you left Lisbon, did, were you already in line with, were you already considering why you were here and what you were doing? And what age, if not, what age did that conversation start to play in your head? That's an excellent question. I, I spent some time reflecting on how yeah how is it that i've come about having this understanding and this relationship with my purpose and i actually i'm convinced that for most people i speak to who do seem to have a relationship with their purpose the the music is always playing in the background Mm. and i think what you end up developing over time is just an ability to listen to the music and to learn to describe the music that you're hearing to someone else i think from my earliest memories i remember caring about the the planet i remember caring about the people around me my grandma and my mom were both very sensitive people my mom is still a very sensitive person she's still alive mm-hmm. my grandma isn't and i think i've inherited those traits from them somehow yeah. i'm a very sensitive person i pick up people's feelings a great deal and as a result i find it really important to try and lead to the best emotional outcomes for, yeah. for everyone around me so having understood that about myself fairly early on, seeing how it manifested itself in the ways that I felt when I was at school and the ways that I felt when I was deciding what I wanted to do for a career and having chosen human computer and interaction and product design, which is a very, a discipline very grounded in leading to the best emotional outcomes for people Mm, in the process. I think you are influenced by your purpose, whether you have a strong understanding of it or not. Yeah. Before I had a, dis- a described version, a written version of my purpose, I'd already made career decisions. I'd already made choices yeah. that were in line with that sense of purpose. It was just probably roughly, I would say, five to six years ago when I sat down and I retraced my steps that I was able to actually put into words. I think this is happening deliberately. And I think this is related to something. And then I was able to describe that thing a bit better. So it was around the same time that you phoned the Samaritans and that there was a, a, a realignment or a, a sort of a reintroduction to that conversation, that tape playing that I, I refer to sometimes on the podcast. Is that right? It's about the same time that things were happening. There was, there was probably quite a lot of, you know, kind of, I don't know even how to describe it. You discussed it in your talk 
there was an incident that happened and a, a sort of a series of things that happened that led you to making that phone call. Is yeah, that, um, that I can share a bit more about yeah. the journey from that point. And what happened specifically was my girlfriend broke up with me at the time. And the experience led me to question my sense of goal setting and purpose because I had set myself the, the goal and it was an important part of my sense of purpose to be with this person yeah. for the rest of my life. And it, because of how connected I feel to the people I feel connected to, it was really yeah. important to me. Being an only child, having a small family, the people I have in my life are really important to, yeah. to my sense of identity, my sense of meaning. So when someone broke up with me, there was a, an element of, of disruption that took place in my ability to navigate myself in a complex world where having felt as disoriented as I did, I, I needed the support of someone to help me understand where I was, what led me there yeah, and to give me, to, to help me find some way forward. Um, after having experienced that and having shared with the Samaritan what I did, which that I want to spend the rest of my life with this person, the Samaritan asked me a really pointed question. Do you think you're being fair on yourself by setting goals that are dependent on the choices and actions of other people? Mm. And I think that question specifically was really powerful to me because it helped me understand that I need to have some element of a self-awareness that cannot be strongly influenced by other people in a way that allows me to remain grounded yeah. and allows me to be able to navigate when the going gets tough and things get a bit complicated. Yeah. And after that aligned, I remember when you were talking about that in your keynote, which, by the way, folks, I've got a link to it in the show notes. I was emailing back and forth with the organisers of UX Scotland this week, and those videos are up. Have you seen them? I haven't seen them yet. I've seen your talk. You haven't even seen your <laughs> talk. Only joking. But I'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's really good. But that whole kind of piece of what you're talking about there of the question that the Samaritans gave you, it almost like there was an opportunity there and an accountability that we all have for our own actions. And it seems to me like there's a lot of people out there that don't really understand that they've got their own accountability for their own actions. And I know Eckhart Tolle, he speaks about this. You know, you are in control of your mind and you can externalize these things and examine it and see what the triggers are. But ultimately, if you're in a situation where it's quite complex, you've got the ability to decide what you want to do next. And that's what I could hear in, in your talk. Like you've got this resilience, but at that moment in time when you were, when you'd broken up with your partner, we're going to come to a positive pit in that conversation in a minute because it's not all doom and gloom for you. Are you married with that person now? Uh, we got back together. Yeah. Yeah. So we, yeah, we were apart for a year and we've been total being together now for 12 years. Yeah, there you go. Look, <laughs> but at that moment, there was a sense. I remember speaking to you afterwards where you were like, I don't know what to do here. What was that process like and how you were able to because you were separate for a year. What were the things that you were doing in that year? Because it sounds like it was transformative and it sounds like, you know, you connected with your purpose in a very deep way. Who was involved and what were you doing in that year? I think growing up, one of the things that tends to happen as you form a sense of self in the 21st century, 
I remember when I was younger seeing the fact that in, in one day, someone from the 21st century could see more information than someone might in their entire lifetime in the 18th or 17th century or something. And I don't know how true that is, because I don't know whether we can actually go back and compare these things. We'll do a very check with Jerry Data there. I'm just going to ask the algorithm. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Whether it's true or not, it's still, even if it's 50% true, I I would believe it's still kind of mind-blowing. Hey, sorry for interrupting the episode, but I wanted to tell you about today's sponsor, Miro. Many people connect it to just being another business collaboration tool, but for me, it's so much more. I use it to manage my own Ikigai to help me keep track of my own life and career. This one here that you can see won't get shared to anyone else, so it's a private board. Only I can see it. Now, the beauty of all this is I didn't need to create these canvases from scratch. People on the Miroverse upload them, and there's a constant stream of updated frameworks there for all us changemakers all around the world to use for free. Many of which come with really detailed instructions on how to use them. So for more information, see www.miro.com forward slash podcast, where you can get three free canvases for free for life. Let's get back into that episode. Absolutely. So we have a lot more information to navigate, uh, certainly each day than ever before. And I think in that information, there's a lot of competing information. And I think that one of the biggest themes is this idea that you can a- acquire the thing that you're seeking mm. and marketing and a few other industries have proliferated that mental model of reality and fulfillment. Uh, and I don't think marketing is evil, by the way. I think there are ways to do it in a way that really benefits people's lives. But I think in that space, it can be quite difficult to step outside of a lot of the noise and recalibrate yourself. And like many other people, I had developed a sense of self-worth that was strongly attached to someone else who showed me that I was worthy of love. Um, And when I lost that person that was giving me a, a strong indication that I was worthy of love, and that became the compass through which I determined my value, then... I had to seek another way of determining whether I am worthy of love, whether I am valuable, or whether if I'm not, then maybe I don't belong in this world. And that's where the conversations around questioning whether you should be alive or you shouldn't be alive Mm. start to arise. It becomes an exploration. If I am to be alive, what do I bring to this world and what, what makes me worthy of being here? And I think a lot of that energy that would have been directed towards nurturing a relationship I had with this person I was redirecting towards myself. I was redirecting it towards working on my own mind through reading books that I was starting to uh, really enjoy through spending time with friends that I hadn't ever spent as much time as I was spending with uh, exercising. I began to set really ambitious goals for myself. I thought if there's a chance that I don't belong here, why not try and make the most of the time that I am here? Mm. And I set myself the goal of running marathons, which I did. I set myself the goal of eventually volunteering for this mental health charity to help me out and I just had a a list of things that I just wanted to get through and experience and see what it feels like and some somewhere along the way I happened to fall in love with this idea that I am I'm good enough as I am and that 
I I don't need validation from an, an external source yeah. that I belong here. I think I do, and I I do bring value to the world, and I do want to be here. Yeah, one of the things that we were speaking afterwards was the ability to stand on a stage and talk about this topic is for some people it can be kind of triggering or it can be like a revelation for others. And in Ireland at the moment, one of our, our children of our country, Sinead O'Connor, died a couple of weeks ago. And we don't know how she died, whatever it means, but she did do stuff in the 90s that was really triggering for the culture that we were in at the moment. And I'd love to get your perspective on it. Like when they started speaking about their mental health in the mid 90s, people were like, whoa, there was a huge stigma about it. And it's only after Sinead O'Connor has died that, of course, you know, you know, we're talking about and we're celebrating their life. One of the singer songwriters that I hold in the highest regard is called Glenn Hansard in Ireland. And he had a great phrase that we love to celebrate our heroes on the wall, but not in the room. We can't handle them. And it's very true. What do you think? There's probably people out there. And I know when you were speaking, it was like, oh, OK, we're talking about mental health even now. So how do you process those kind of conversations when people say to you that it might be risky to talk about this stuff so much in the open. How do you respond mm. to those kind of questions? Because I'm all for it. But there mm. are still generations out there that say, is this wise to be talking about this stuff? That's, th that question is one of the most important questions of the work that I do. I think from my perspective, the way I simplify it is... I think of mental health as existing on a spectrum, a lot like a lot of things. And I don't, in in this case, mean the neurodivergent spectrum. I mean an emotional spectrum. Yeah. And that happens, it fluctuates throughout the day, it fluctuates throughout your lifetime, and you can be in a largely emotionally positive side of that spectrum or mm. largely emotionally negative side of that spectrum. You can be walking down the street and suddenly it starts raining, you didn't bring an umbrella and someone's driving and they're reckless and they splash a massive puddle in, in your face. That wasn't me. And, you know. It wasn't me, by the way. I know you're looking at me. I, I only did it last week to them and they deserved it. Only joking, go on. Um, and, you know, that takes you from maybe being on a neutral side of the emotional spectrum yeah. to being on a not so good side of the emotional spectrum. My experience of having felt suicidal was being on the extreme of that spectrum yeah but i think all of us every single day fluctuate yeah, in, in that spectrum Good. some of us fluctuate more wildly than others some of us will have phases where we are more deeply in one side of the spectrum than the other yeah. i think for me it became really important to speak about it because i'm someone who's very optimistic who's generally very happy yeah. and the fact that i could experience the extreme of that spectrum on the not so good side help me really build empathy and understand that if I, someone who generally had a wonderful childhood, my mom was very kind and loving towards me, even though there were financial struggles in our households and a bunch of other struggles, we were a very loving family. Yeah. So I was generally always a very happy kid, uh, very fulfilled. So when I was struck by this experience, it, it, it helped me understand that I think we all need a level of support. We all need a level of uh, perspective when we do experience these ex extreme fluctuations in our emotional well-being. Hmm. So talking about it for me is about 
normalizing it. Yeah. I don't think it it has to be always the extremes. I think if you are able to speak about it candidly before it gets to that extreme, or as you are in that extreme, I think we we will save lives. And yeah. I can't think of a good reason why we wouldn't want really talented people like Robin Williams, Sinead O'Connor. We don't know why, but let's say there is a possibility that that might be part of the reason. We know there are countless musicians, there are artists, creators, people who have brought us really wonderful things that we were not able to to keep here because they did not re- receive the support that they needed. Yeah. They were not able to have open spaces to speak about what they were going through. Mm. And I can't think of a good reason why I wouldn't want to play a role in keeping all of that good stuff here yeah. on this earth because I'm not sure what's on the other side. I'm not sure I'm going to get to listen to that music again. I'm not sure yeah, I'm going to yeah. get to see that again, so on and so forth. I think it's really well said. There are instances, though, when I coach a lot of change makers around the world and it's not possible for them to talk about it in their organization. So I'm assuming Monzo um, is relatively forward thinking in their culture. You just have to look at their branding and their marketing and speak to people like yourself. So it's probably more safe. And I use that word kind of delicately to raise these things like it's not going to impact your career growth but there are situations there in organizations that are relatively restricted in their progress is probably a very nice way of saying it and they're somewhat toxic so it's not always appropriate in my understanding to be able to speak to 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 these kind of topics what advice do you give to people who are in those situations they could be government where they really struggle to bring their full self to work and they maybe feel disconnected to their purpose, but they yet have mortgages and mouths to feed. I'm giving you a complex problem. You. Giving you a complex <laughs> problem. <laughs> Thank you. I, I agree with you. I do believe that Monzo is progressive in a number of ways um, and extremely inclusive as an organization. I definitely find it uh, easier to be able to carry myself how I choose to carry myself in an organization like Monzo. But I'm convinced that the vulnerability that we need to show to ourselves and to others around us, A, happens to varying levels of personal comfort. Yeah. I I think just because I work at Monzo and others work at Monzo does not mean most folks here have an equal level of comfort yeah. of being vulnerable, even in a space like this. Um, and there, there are a variety of reasons why that might be. Someone may have not fully embraced their emotions in the way that they may need to. They've not fully explored their emotions in a safe space with a trained professional like a therapist or um, maybe a volunteer mental health practitioner Mm. who can help them find some words initially to explore their emotions in a way that I was supported in that call with that volunteer Samaritan. And there there are a variety of other reasons and they go on and on. I think in terms of the advice, it's important for all of us to think about Where can we start? Where are we comfortable today taking one step further than we were yesterday? I don't think the answer is for all of us to suddenly start talking about really profound parts of our emotional experience in life if we've never done that before. Hmm. I think it could be one step that the next time someone asks you, "How, how are you doing? that you could maybe give something closer to an honest answer instead of saying, I'm good by default. Maybe you could say, actually, today, you know, I'm not 100%, but, you know, hopefully things will get better as the day goes on. Yeah. And for me, 
Um, sometimes just giving a simple answer like that sparks a conversation. Someone goes, oh, interesting. Why, you know, what's making you not 100%? Uh, and you can speak about something very light to you and something that might have happened that day, the, the driver that drove past and splashed <laughs> yeah, you. Not me. Um, <laughs> or, you know, over time, your relationship with that human can build in, in, in complexity and you find yourself having a really meaningful connection at work, for example. Um, I saw some research from, I, I, I read it in Harvard Business Review, but one of the sort of strongest factors to in, to determining whether someone is likely to stay at an organization is whether they have a best friend at work. Yeah. So there is something about us as human beings that's really important for us to feel connected, connected to the people that we surround ourselves with, our, our family, our friends, our colleagues. And I think the best, one of the best ways to feel connected to people is for them to feel like they see us as who we are. And yeah. the, one of the ways to do that is to be truthful mm. and be, being truthful requires all that, a level of vulnerability. So we're, we're coming towards the end of the conversation. I know everyone's like, no, but <laughs> I, I want to ask you a question about how bringing your true self, aligning to your purpose, what impact that has had on your role as a product designer within Monzo. Makes me more motivated to approach my work in a way that is unique to me. Mm. Over time, I found it harder to lean on predetermined frameworks because they are what everyone uses, for example. I used to be someone who frowned upon the term gut feel. I found it very abstract, very ambiguous. But mm. over time, I've learned to trust my gut a bit more. If something doesn't feel right, yeah. uh, instead of just leaning on what the data is telling me, I will pursue that feeling i'll try and understand why does this not feel right yeah what's missing here and i'll try to uncover what it is that's leading me to feel that way sure. uh, as a product designer so you could be working on a project despite it making perfect sense for the business despite the data telling you this is the right thing when you're looking at the design something isn't feeling good and pursuing that feeling trusting that your gut is telling you something important wherever it may be usually leads to somewhere really fruitful and I think sometimes when we don't do that as design practitioners, we look back and we think, I now know why my gut was telling me what it was telling me. Now that sure. I see it out there, I now know where it was, but it's out there now. Yeah. And, I, you know, sometimes it's harder to go back. True. In terms of your maintenance, I guess, of, you know, Heldene, how, how and what are you doing on a daily, weekly, monthly practice? to ensure that you yourself and your career are being looked after? Yeah, I generally, some people have achieved it, but and I achieved it in phases in my life, but I don't believe that we can consistently take good care of ourselves. Yeah, I think everything happens in phases. There are phases where I'm, I feel incredibly good at taking good care of myself. Yeah. There are phases where I'm less good at taking good care of myself. I remember when my grandma passed away two years ago, the emotional journey that took me on led me to eventually start running a, I signed up for a triathlon. I completed the triathlon. It was really excellent. It felt a really great sense of fulfillment. When I took on my director role, there was a brief moment where I was able to run less. I really enjoy running. I really enjoy swimming and just being active makes me really happy. And in that time, in that phase, when I was taking on additional responsibility, it's a volunteer role, so I have to do it on top of my work, yeah. my full-time job at Monzo. 
there was a moment where my relationship with the things I was working on was at an imbalance with my ability to take good care of my my physical health, certainly. My mental health, I feel like I surround myself with a lot of people with a lot of techniques that have helped me guarantee or increase the likelihood that generally my emotional well-being is at a good place. But being active, being able to get out there and run and swim is also a really important part of how I take good care of myself. And those things only up up until recently have been at an imbalance. And and now I'm starting to get control of it again. And I'm feeling really settled in my director role and I have a really great leadership team. So I'm able to start to prioritize parts of my life a bit more. In terms of your alignment to your purpose, there was obviously five or six years ago, there was a a journey that you went on. Was there anything that you did at that time in terms of reflective practices that you incorporated that help you, if you want, for a better phrase, see the light? What were the things that you can remember or were the books you read? Any recommendations for people out there looking to go on that journey at the moment? In terms of practices, there are a few books that perhaps may not be what would be traditional recommendations in this space. But one of them is a book called Principles by Ray Dalio. And Ray Dalio is a an investor. So yeah. it's you know it's interesting that that book specifically carries many principles for how to think of your life that have been really helpful for me. One of them is surround yourself with people who can see things that you can't. And that as a principle for thinking about your career is also a really great principle for thinking about your life. I have a partner, Jess, who who did break up for a year, (laughs) but uh, she's incredibly good at spotting things that I might take a bit longer to spot. She might be seeing a pattern in my day-to-day life, a pattern in my thinking and the things I'm saying that gives me an early signal into something that I might have taken a bit longer to realize. And that is one of the ways in which I didn't realize it, but some of the choices I made in my life helped me cover my gaps. And I think we sometimes do this without noticing, Mm -hmm. but I think a book like Principles helped me be more mindful that I was actively choosing to do that. That's a book I'd recommend, but in terms of practices, I also recommend journaling. It's a, I'm a big proponent of journaling, writing your thoughts and feelings with a frequency that feels right to you. It doesn't have to be every single day. It can really help you zoom out and sometimes look back and see the journey that you've been on and spot themes and patterns that may be helpful for you in making decisions. Do you use pen and paper or do you use a digital tool for that? I prefer a digital tool. I like to be able to jump to a specific year really quickly and jump to a specific month. And I like to be able to compare things, but that's the techie in me that doesn't want to let go of <laughs> what a lot do you of use? What tech. tool do you use? Do you want to give a uh, shout? I use just the Google Docs. Google Doc. Docs. <laughs> and do you lock them down, or do you just yeah. you do you lock them down? Yeah, they are locked. Yeah, they're locked inside your vault. Look, some people use Google Docs. I think I've used Journal before. I don't know if you've used Journal that the Mac app. We it's all locked up on a vault. Just don't ever forget your password. <laughs> but look, Eldon, I, it's been great. Like I, I, the moment you walked in, I, I was looking for you. I remember you came in through the door and I go, how's it going? And you're like, oh, I know you. And I was like, I know you. I was like, what time are you on? And I want to speak to you. I want to do a podcast. And you're like, oh, we don't have time. I've got to go back to London. But so thank you for giving me your time and, you know, being open and being relatively vulnerable, you know, 
on this conversation. I know people will appreciate it. But if people want to follow up with you and follow your journey and maybe keep an eye on when you're speaking at other conferences, what's the best way for people to do that? Uh, I'm currently on X, it's called now, formerly Twitter. <laughs> you can follow me on LinkedIn and it's I my Twitter at or X at is the same as my first name, Heldene. Same on LinkedIn. There aren't many Heldenes out there. Super so cool you'll name. be able to find me easily. Super cool name. Look, Heldene, thank you so much for your time and I'll talk to you soon. Speak soon. Thanks for having me, Jerry.